from the studios of Farm Journal Broadcast. This is U.S. Farm Report. Welcome to U.S. Farm Report this weekend. I'm Tyne Morgan, and here's what's in store over the next 60 minutes. Land sales seem unstoppable as one company says land sales are up over 50% in just six months. It's a comeback story in cotton. Yes, it's been a, a wild ride. The drought concerns mean farmers in Texas are waiting on moisture to plant. Two topsoil moisture extremes. We're extremely dry. I, I would say we're giving 2011 a run for its money. That's as chillier air takes hold across the country. And in John's world. The great chip shortage, part two. Well, as more farmers head out to plant, it's the tale of two extremes when it comes to moisture, as some farmers are having to dig down pretty deep to even find any moisture in fields. USDA releasing the latest topsoil moisture conditions, and as you can see, several states are short or very short. States like New Mexico, where 85% of the state is short or very short for topsoil moisture. Montana, it's at 73%. But look at North Dakota, 58% is very short with topsoil moisture. 25% is short. That makes a total of 83% short to very short. But in other places, it's a story of too much moisture. In North Carolina, moisture is 79% adequate with 15% surplus. With some warmer temperatures hitting this week, one farmer says he's finally able to kick off corn planting, but now it's a game of catch up. We're probably a week to a week and a half behind when we would normally start. We normally would start the last week of May or March, excuse me, and it was last week before we got started, so it was the first of April. In other parts of the country, things are moving ahead of average for planting, according to the latest USDA Crop Progress Report, with 4% of the corn crop now planted. That's one percentage point ahead of the five-year average. Texas continuing to lead the way with 57% of its corn crop in the ground. Now, cotton planting, it's also a bit ahead of normal, with 8% in the ground, compared to the five-year average of 7%. Checking the winter wheat conditions, 53% is rated good to excellent. That's the same as last week. Well, some exports in February hit new record highs. The U.S. exported nearly $156 billion worth of food and ag products last year, but it looks like this year U.S. corn exports have set a new record. Corn exports in February hit 6.3 million tons or 248 million bushels. That tops the record set in 2008 for the month by 17 percent, and it's the largest monthly volume since July of 2018. Weekly export data suggests March shipments reached an all-time monthly record, likely topping 9 million tons. The largest ever volume is 7.75 million tons, and that was set in May of 2018. China accounts for roughly 19 percent of all corn inspected for export in March. And new weekly sorghum exports smashed the previous record set back in August. USDA confirmed this week that sorghum exports hit 33.9 million bushels for the week. That tops the previous weekly record by 10 million bushels and is enough sorghum to fill 10 to 12 Panamax vessels. Texas Sorghum says it's not just old crop China keeps buying, but also new crop. The high plains, what we're seeing is a bid for acreage. Uh, we have some folks anywhere between a dollar to two dollars over the futures, which is really kind of unheard of on the plains. Uh, it's buying acres, talking to our growers, uh, 
uh, kind of the irony of what's going on in the Valley, which the bid yesterday in the Valley was 130 over. Uh, but the irony is that's new crop. There's no old crop left. I think last week's sales report, we saw that China basically bought every kernel of grain sorghum that was left out there at 26 million bushels. Uh, so old crop is over with in Texas. Everybody's clearly focused on the new crop. With the focus on new crop, Cleveland says if rain chances over the weekend do not materialize in South Texas, that area won't produce much of a sorghum crop this year. Well, the Farmers to Families Food Boxes is coming to an end. The Biden administration made that announcement this week. USDA says after a review of the program, the Biden administration has decided not to continue it after next month. The idea of the program created under the Trump administration was to feed hungry Americans left unemployed by the pandemic. The boxes would be filled with food that wasn't being used by restaurants, schools and cruise ships and taken to food banks. Private companies were hired to buy the food. The program cost $4 billion last year. That's six times higher than the normal emergency food budget. USDA Secretary Tom Vilsack telling leaders of Congress the agency will concentrate on existing aid programs, such as the Emergency Food Assistance Program, or TFAP. The reality is the food box program was set up to respond to, the, to COVID. Uh, it was a response to COVID. Uh, a lot of problems with it, Representative, a lot of problems. Uh, there was a significant a uh, difference of, of administrative costs. In some cases, people were charged a tremendous amount just to fill the boxes. Uh, there was an inadequate uh, accounting of where the boxes were actually delivered. There was a lot of food waste and loss that we, we, we uncovered as a result of these listening sessions. So uh, our theory is that we create opportunities through the TFAP program, uh, through what exists uh, with our food banks and our food pantry system, which is incredibly efficient and incredibly effective at getting resources out to folks. So there's gonna be a continuation uh, we just announced a produce box that will be funneled through uh, that system. We've got the dairy donation program uh, that we're going to set up as well to help the dairy industry. Well, farmers and landowners appear to be buying and selling a lot of land right now. The senior vice president of real estate operations for Farmers National Company reporting that during the first six months of the fiscal year, land sales were up 56 percent over the same time last year. And get this, they were up 67 percent over the average for the past three years. Well, the beef industry is seeing beefed up demand, and that is really helping wholesale beef prices. That's pulled negotiated cash cattle prices three to five dollars per hundred weight higher. Drovers reporting the reopening of restaurants and other food services helping drive beef demand to pre-pandemic levels and beyond, spiking wholesale beef prices twenty dollars per hundred weight higher last week alone, and more than thirty-four dollars higher than over two weeks ago. In fact, April wholesale beef demand could end up being at thirty-year highs. And we're learning more about just how severe the impact of the coronavirus has been to the nation's meatpacking sector. One study estimating 334,000 cases are attributable to packing plants, resulting in more than $11 billion in economic damage. That study was conducted by the University of California, Davis. Researchers finding beef and pork processing plants more than doubled per capita infection rates in counties where the plants are located. They say their estimates suggest previous reports significantly understate the impact of meatpacking facilities on COVID-19 case rates. And they also say their estimated infection rates are likely conservative because the study looked at infection rates within a county and did not account for cases that might have been contracted at a meatpacking plant but spread through other counties. Too cold to plant? Well, that may not be stopping some farmers. Mike Hoffman has your forecast details next. 
Time now for a check of weather with meteorologist Mike Hoffman. Mike, we saw some planting progress happen over the last couple of weeks, but now we're seeing some cold temps really set in. Does that stick around for a while? Good morning to you, Tyne. I think uh, most of us stay pretty chilly as we head through the rest of this week. Then it's kind of the battle between the models and the battle between the air masses as we head into the following week. So that's something we'll have to keep you up to date on. In the meantime, we've had some rain over the past uh, week or so. And in fact, it's turned a little wetter again over parts of Wisconsin, some of the surrounding states. It's continued to be on the wet side, Arkansas, northern Louisiana, into the mid-Atlantic, central Florida turned wetter. However, it remains very dry western Texas into much of the northeast. It's gotten drier over uh, Texas and it's gotten drier over uh, North Dakota as well. And it's remained dry for the most part for uh, most of the western portions of the country. As far as the drought monitor is concerned, this is the latest uh, uh, look at it. And it's actually gotten better overall when you see the edges anyway. Notice how a month ago there was a lot more yellow and orange on the map, so we've eaten away at the fringes a little bit. My concern is it's gotten worse over North Dakota, parts of South Dakota, and it's gotten worse over parts of Texas. And so if those two areas start to expand, that's when we can get into trouble. Uh, as we head through the growing season. So we'll be keeping an eye on things, obviously, as we head through time. In the meantime, if you're wondering about the chilly uh, temperatures that uh, Tyne talked about, yeah, we're still looking at a jet stream bringing that into the eastern two-thirds of the country anyway with a shot there for Tuesday on into Wednesday. And then you can see another shot coming a little farther north. Here's the thing. In this situation here, it's pretty cold up in the uh, northeast quadrant of the country. Uh, but it warms up in the southern portions and that moves into the southeast. Now, the European model, I use the GFS model here, European model is a little more zonal and so that would actually be a little bit warmer. So we'll be keeping an eye on things for you as we head through the next seven days or so. But in the meantime, here's what we believe. We'll have a cold front coming into the northern plains and this has some pretty cold air behind it on Monday. Scattered rain and snow showers with it. Uh, lingering system in the southeast with some scattered showers and storms. By Wednesday then, we're looking at that cold front bringing chilly air all the way down into parts of Louisiana, northern Mississippi, northern Alabama, scattered showers ahead of the cold front and snow showers behind it. Cold air then for the northern plains. By Friday then, we're going to see a couple more systems. And again, this has cold air behind this front. I'm not sure how far south it comes as we head into next weekend, but there's some showers for the middle of the country. Let's check out the 30-day outlook. I'm going below normal in the northern lakes, northern Mississippi Valley northward, above normal for uh, much of the southern Rockies and the southwestern portions of the plains. 30-day outlook for precipitation, Great Lakes, east coast, probably above normal, but below normal for a lot of those dry areas from the western plains through the middle portions of the Rockies. Time. Thanks, Mike. Well, weather may actually already be playing in to the commodity markets. We'll check in with Dwayne Bussey and Tommy Grossafi. We'll do that right after the break. Well, welcome back. Our roundtables this weekend. Tommy Grassoppi, Dwayne Bussey joining us. Looking at the markets this week, some really interesting stories starting to play out. Dwayne, let's first talk about May corn futures hitting $6 this week. I mean, are we looking at $7 now? <laughs> well, I guess that's the ultimate question, right? Uh, 
I, I don't know if we're looking at seven or not. I'd say not in the next month. Um, when I think about corn, we're, we're probably getting fairly close to the top. We might even top out over the next month for the year. We don't know. I, I guess what I know is $6 corn doesn't come around too often and $5 December new crop corn doesn't come around too often. So might not be a bad place to do something for our producers out there. Yeah, I mean, Tommy, when you look at what's driving this corn market right now, we talk about weather. Is weather already a factor when we look at some of the cooler temperatures coming in, some possible weather issues in South America? I mean, what are the catalysts for corn at this point? Well, we still have an explosive market to add on what to you and Dwayne were speaking about. It took 2,400 days. We were at $5 in 2014. We stayed below that for 2,400 days. We went from $5 to $6 in 99 days. What's making that happen? incredible demand and just continued weather problem add a little geopolitical stuff with russia moving in on the ukraine uh, end users are obviously don't have enough bought ethanol not enough bought for five years six years time the market's just been able to know for sure there'll always be affordable product there for them and from a risk management standpoint the people who got caught were the people who were short bought so we could continue to stay explosive to Dwayne's point there are seasonals Boy, you have to respect the seasonals and, and we'll see what happens. But yeah, weather, we haven't even started the weather market and we're starting to, a few weeks ago, it was 80 degrees. We all thought we'd get in the fields early. It's very cold right now going up to North Dakota. Uh, no temperature above 55 degrees for the next 10 days. Keep an eye on that spring wheat crop. Very concerned. Yeah, we'll talk about wheat next, but let's first talk about basis, Dwayne, because I'm hearing some extremely strong basis right now for old crop. Do you think it's that farmers don't have enough old crop right now, they're sold out, or are they just not willing to sell at this point? Well, it's probably case sensitive to your location, I think. Now in my area, which I can speak of in Northeast South Dakota, we had a ton of prevent plant the last two years. Uh, here, there isn't the old crop. To be honest, I'm curious how ethanol plants, soybean crush plants are gonna operate this summer. It was a great open winter. Uh, the market was calling farmers to go ahead and bring them the bushels in. So we, we did, we hauled the corn, we hauled the beans. There's nothing left up here, but I don't know, central Illinois, you know, strong, positive basis. That's pulling the markets up this past week. And maybe there's just not as much old crop as we think. Tommy, let's move over to wheat because we're hearing some freeze and frost issues in other countries. We know we have cold weather here. Do you feel like wheat is maybe a little on the low side right now, considering we have drought plaguing, key wheat areas like the Northern Plains, yet cold temperatures on the way right now? I think for spread traders, not so much for the farmer marketing side, but for spread traders, I've talked to some really intelligent people who said they want their longs in wheat and they want to start using the corn market as their short. Now that's a speculative spread trade, but these spread trades and speculative positions really move markets. Uh, the farmers flush with cash. The world's flush with wheat. We're not running out of wheat. Uh, Russia has plenty of wheat, but but yet, if we see, if you look at what China did, they came over the United States, bought all our beans. They came over the United States, bought a lot of our corn. What's next? Wheat. That's all we have left. Uh, you see things like canola uh, in tight supply. So wheat's the last commodity that if, if things start to change, when you look at what cash wheat is versus cash corn in the world, are we going to start feeding wheat? And so as we run out or become in very tight supply of corn, wheat becomes a lot more important. Yeah, and Dwayne, we kind of got a hint of that in the last USDA report, right? Yeah, I think so. I, I think 
Tommy's 100% right. I think we're going to look to feed more wheat. China has been the whole past year, right? They've been importing a ton of wheat, buying it from Australia. And word is this past week that they're actually looking at the U.S. for some wheat now. And then, you know, Tommy mentioned up in North Dakota, the, the drought situation we've got. I, I really poo-pooed it about a month ago because it was March, right? Who cares about a drought then? But it just hasn't rained in western North Dakota. So it's becoming a serious issue and should help that Minneapolis wheat contract. All right, Tommy and Dwayne, stay with us. We're going to check back with, in with you later in the show. But first, we need to take a break, and then we'll have much more right here on U.S. Farm Report. Well, last week, John Phipps started talking about the microchip shortage, and he dives into a little bit more detail this weekend on U.S. Farm Report. John? Okay, last week we looked at how microchip manufacturing is a vast network of separate companies and operations from design to packaging with disturbing bottlenecks and near monopolies that make the whole enterprise more fragile than we ever imagined until the pandemic showed us the problems. All of this matters more than ever because demand is growing and will continue to skyrocket with connectivity and automation driving the market. Again, this is a graph that is by sales, not chip volume, but it gives a rough idea of who's buying what. The big two are computing and communications. The communications demand will be driven by both 5G build-out and the preparation for autonomous cars. Notice the demand by the auto industry is dwarfed by these big two. This is a big factor in which industry gets allocated how much of this scarce supply. Obviously, supplying the millions of new iPhones would be much more attractive than cranking out cheaper chips for cars. Now, factor in competition from millions of new PlayStations and other consumer devices. Meanwhile, the use of chips in the auto industry is likewise growing rapidly. By the end of this decade, almost half the cost, not the price, but the cost of cars will be for electronics. The oncoming wave of electric vehicles will push this number up as well. Manufacturers were struggling to meet demand before the pandemic. The investment needed to increase capacity in some of the process steps is both enormous and long-term. We're talking billions and years, not millions and months. To illustrate how stretched and fragile this industry is right now, consider the recent fire in a chip manufacturer in uh, Japan, Renesis Electronics. This company is just one of the fabricators using chips from TSMC, but its customers include many automotive manufacturers who have been hit hard. The smaller purple dots also represent some ag machinery makers, a story time will detail soon. Microchips are not commodities, but individually designed and built components for specific end uses. Excess supply of one type is useless for other device makers. With all these factors and pressures, predicting how things will be changing in the future is nearly impossible. Nonetheless, I'm going to try to imagine the possibilities and implications for agriculture next week in the thrilling inclusion to the great chip shortage. Thanks, John. Well, when we come back, Machine Repeat, he has this week's tractor tales. Got equipment to sell privately but tired of scams and hassles? Visit MachineRepeat.com and click Sell Mine. MachineRepeat.com, the simple and secure way to buy and sell equipment online. Hey, welcome back to Tractor Tales, folks. This week, join me as we head out to the Pacific Northwest to check out a very unique Alice Chalmers D19. 
<laughs> oh, I got a 1964 Alice Chalmers D19 turbo diesel. Uh, it was the 39th of the last one off the assembly line out of West Alice, Wisconsin. I was uh, on the Alice Chalmers discussion forum on there quite a bit and uh, saw this guy, uh, Brian Lee out of Montevideo, Minnesota had the thing and talked to him about a year ago about if he wants to sell the tractor, he didn't. And bugged him about three, four months ago and said, do you want to sell the tractor again? And started talking back and forth and I said, name your price and he did. And it was max amount what I wanted to go, but I got it in my collection. So I was pretty excited about that. So not gonna work it that hard. He got out a guy out of uh, Utah, in Salt Lake City, Utah area, and I knew who he was, so I called him up and he bought it a brand new out of Ramona, California area. So pretty neat, go from West Alice, Wisconsin to Ramona, California to Utah, Minnesota, and now back up to Linden, Washington. It's, it's gonna stay in this home for quite some time. Well, up next, it's a comeback story for cotton. As some farmers worry, they may not even have much of a crop to sell this year. That's our Farm Journal Report next. U.S. Farm Report is produced and distributed by Farm Journal Broadcast. Welcome back to U.S. Farm Report. Trusted, timely, tradition. Well, the latest U.S. drought monitor really shows not much improvement over the past week. That's as some farmers in Texas are worried they may not have much of a crop at all, while other farmers in the east say it's too much moisture that's causing concerns. That's as cotton prices continue to climb, and it's a comeback story for cotton in this week's Farm Journal report. Planting 2021 is already seeing problems. We're extremely dry. I, I would say we're giving 2011 a run for its money, but we're probably drier than 2011 at this point. Blake Fennell farms in Earth, Texas, which sets on the northern edge of West Texas, an area of the country known as being home to the largest U.S. cotton patch. You know, we've still got to give that crop every chance that we think we can get, but at the same time, we also can't... Uh, waste a lot of money on a crop that we don't think we're going to have going into it. Fennell says if rains don't hit these Texas fields in the next month, it'll be devastating to the West Texas cotton crop. Monitoring our inputs very closely is, is going to be the key to, frankly, it's going to be the key to survival this year. But in the Mid-South and Southeast, cotton farmers are dealing with the opposite problem. Um, we are extremely wet going right now we've been wet since last October. Pummeled with rain, it's already delayed the start to planting. If it stays wet and we keep getting moisture, we, there's, a, there's a possibility that we could switch corn acres over to cotton acres, maybe even bean acres. For farmers in West Texas and the Southeast, cotton isn't just a staple. Cotton dust is our considered our cash crop. So when it gets time to plant cotton, we, we put it in the ground. And National Cotton Council says weather will have the final say on production this year. You know, does that come into play in terms of uh, some of the some of the producers who uh, try to get out and plant corn early? And if it's too wet, then you're going to have producers that look at, okay, is the alternative going to be soybeans or is it going to be cotton? And that's probably going to depend on relative prices. Adam says there's also grave concern about the potential of Texas's crop this year. Concerns growing from a local level. But abandonment looks like it's going to be pretty high this year just for the simple fact that there is no ground moisture to get this crop emerged. But as production problems play out, 
prices are producing profits again. The underlying fundamentals from where I sit are bullish. I, I just look at the weather problems they're having in West Texas. Prices that produced pain just a year ago. Yes, yeah, it's just been a, a wild ride. Warren says the COVID-19 pandemic had a devastating impact on cotton prices. It was very depressing last year. We thought we were going to where we are this year, last year. And then when COVID hit and demand shrank and there was just nothing there, no buyers. Adam says at one point last year, consumer spending on clothing and textiles had dropped 85 percent. Right now, they've clawed uh, some of that demand back, but if we would have gone in talking about pre-COVID levels of consumption of around 3 million bales, we would probably say right now we're consuming at a rate of about 2.5 million bales a year. Still 15 to 20 percent below pre-COVID levels, it's a trend moving in the right direction, as international appetite is also growing. We did see a lot of purchases in China in 2020. In fact, on uh, of just cotton, U.S. cotton, it was about five and a half million bales. So China reestablished itself as the largest export market for U.S. cotton. Adam says cotton farmers were a big beneficiary of the phase one agreement with China, but U.S. cotton could also become the world's cotton of choice. Most of it is grown in a few places here, India, Pakistan, China. Those are pretty much the big players. Headline after headline shows a controversy unfolding as H&M Group, the world's second largest clothing retailer, said last year it would stop buying cotton from a Chinese province, and that's over forced labor concerns. You have this Chinese, you know, human rights issue where a lot of this cotton production is taking place. Folks on the, I would say, more progressive side of the, of the U.S. consumer uh, industry, they're not wanting to use that supply. Well, that's, I mean, a fifth of the global supply. So you're saying, hey, okay, now we're not going to use that cotton. We need to use everybody else's now, and they're going to compete for U.S. supply. Adams says while tensions between the U.S. and China are also still there, the forced labor issue could play in the United States' favor. One of the messages we tried to say is obviously U.S. cotton could be, a, uh, could be an option and an alternative uh, that, you know, given, you know, labor requirements in the United States, given the laws and regulations that we operate under, uh, you know, that we certainly uh, feel like that can be an option. An opportunity to sell more cotton, as U.S. cotton farmers already have a sustainability story to share. We believe that being able to demonstrate that sustainability story is part of what we need to do to ensure that demand base. I just think it is. And, and Fortunately, we've got the data to be able to tell that story. The compelling story is already playing out in farm fields. I do think we have a, a head start on that and are able to jump right into that and capitalize on what they're, what they're looking to push. From the National Cotton Council's U.S. Cotton Trust Protocol to cotton seed brands creating their own sustainability programs. Cotton programs today are focused on tracing cotton from the farm all the way to the clothes consumers buy and wear. If we can show the traceability of this cotton all the way back to the acre, uh, and we can, the technology is easily there, and we can show them how we produce that cotton, where it was produced. As cotton farmers share their story, it's one that's ripe with pride. So it is a, a certain spot and you feel like you're almost, you know, singled out or lucky to be able to grow it where you are. There's a, a sense of pride that comes with being a cotton farmer and, and the pride of the of the people out here in West Texas. It's second to none. American grown and American made. Cotton farmers will tell you that's just the cotton way. Well, when we come back, we'll dive back into our marketing discussion with Tommy Grisafi and Dwayne Bussey. That's next. 
It starts with a plan. That's why America's Conservation Ag Movement is inviting you to get your farm business ready for 2021 with a free resource stewardship planning guide. Get your free guide today at agweb.com ACAM. Welcome back, Tommy Grossapi and Dwayne Bussey joining us. All right, we just had that long piece exploring the cotton market, talking about cotton prices, talking about the drought and the dynamics there, but also talking about domestic demand and how domestic demand is really clawing back for cotton right now. But Tommy, when you look at not only consumers spending more on cotton, we see lumber prices, we see all of these other things impacting the economy right now. I mean, does it feel like a bubble that's about to burst? That's about not even a million-dollar question. That's a trillion-dollar question. So speaking of trillions, we have $5 trillion put in the economy in the last 13 months, okay? And people are tired of being locked up. People like myself have been vaccinated, and uh, it, it, we want to get out. I'm going out to dinner with my folks. We're going out shopping, back-to-school shopping already. Uh, th there's money out there. And with the stock market, like Groundhog Day, at new highs every day, uh, hit a new high this week, Bitcoin, new high this week, interest rates starting to tick up. You have to talk about inflation. And when there's so much money in the system, and granted, there's the haves and have-nots. I do know people who went broke, but the people who didn't go broke, our farmers, our clients, they've never had so much available cash, both due to the price of the commodity and to the ability of the government to hand them this money. And so we have incredible things happening. Three things you need to focus on. Record low interest rates record high government spending helping stimulate things and just overall money in the economy and it's really having an effect and if it's cotton if it's oils it's if it's the crude oil or the uh, the palm oil overseas what's happening in america we're recovering sooner than most countries time but when the rest of the world recovers when you get india recovering brazil recovering both having horrible COVID numbers watch out expect a bubble but hey so many people go broke trying to pick the top and make sure that's not you. You know, when you talk about this bubble, I mean, typically, you know, how would it impact our commodities, Dwayne? Well, it should help the commodities. I mean, inflation fears would drive commodities higher. The one commodity I noticed is kind of lagging to me is the cattle market. I know we just had a rough week, but we do have an upward trend. We maybe broke a little bit of that upward trend this week, but to Tommy's point, when you mentioned all the commodities, how high they can go and, and, you know, yes, eventually there'll be a bubble. But when I look at uh, cattle and think 120 for fast, that still seems fairly cheap. When I think of all that money out there that Tommy mentioned, people are going to be out. They want to go to restaurants. They want to spend money. They want to have barbecues with their friends and neighbors. That market looks a little cheap to me, and I look for it to find support here soon. Tommy, what about hogs? Because we saw ho the hog market kind of break on Thursday. Do you think that's a sign of, of, of more lower prices to come? Well, you have to understand where we started. When we started in the 70s or 80s and we went all the way up to 110 in the June hog contract, think about that. 110 summer hogs. Now, there's been people, uh, I have a couple friends who you both know, who have been hedging hogs from 85 up to 105. Those margin calls, even though it's the right thing to do, as long as their banker's on board and the profitability's there. But regardless, uh, everyone loves to be a hedger until the hedges go against you. And many people, if I had to guess, some people blew out of some hog hedges and uh, as this market starts to cool off, you know, it, and the same thing could happen this summer in grains is it becomes expensive to be a hedger in a bull market. Dwayne, I've heard from a few farmers this week saying, listen, I didn't even expect this latest CFAP round, but it, it ended up in my account. 
you know, as you see more of that CFAP cash get to farmers on that farm level, how do you think that impacts marketing decisions? I, I know on my farm, it helps with margin calls, I guess, to like Tommy's point, I was giggling and laughing because I know exactly what it's like to be a producer and hedged on the board because you're making profits. We uh, have joked in here recently about there, there's the spreadsheet Dwayne and then there's the trader Dwayne and the spreadsheet Dwayne looks at the profits and says, we're making great money at $5 D's corn. You go ahead and sell it. I, but the problem is, yeah, the, the trader sees it going higher and you don't want to sell and you want to buy your hedges back like Tommy says. So I, I think for us farmers, we got to, you know, it, it's okay to make money. I uh, remember that, but yeah, be careful. Maybe you want some upside and some call options, not, but no, this money helps. Um, farmers are in such a better situation than they were a year from now. It's just amazing to me, the flip. Tommy, real quick, what message do you want to leave farmers with right now? Markets are volatile. Expect volatility, not just for the few months, but I think we have a dynamic market for the next 18 months. And I want you to use every tool available. And if you need help, I want you to call someone and ask for help, not just from a marketing standpoint, but keep it straight up here. It's been a long 13 months. We need to stay mentally strong. Well, up next, he's a familiar face to many of you, Shark Farmer. But up next, we're going to show you a different side of the Shark Farmer. He joins us on U.S. Farm Report. That's coming up next. U.S. Farm Report is brought to you by Bayer Plus Rewards, helping make every part of your season more rewarding. Visit MyBayerPlus.com to learn more. speak at an event or maybe you follow him on social media. Rob Sharkey, known as the Shark Farmer, is breaking the mold in agriculture as he works to bring farmers and ranchers stories to life. But when he's not doing that, he actually has an Illinois farm. He shares his stories and adventures on his Shark Farmer podcast, but we're excited to introduce a new series where you'll get to see a different side of Rob as he peels back the layers of the most impactful stories he's gathering. This weekend, we kick things off with Shark Farmer Stories. On April 6, 2018, a bus carrying the Humboldt Broncos, which is a hockey team from Saskatchewan, was hit by a semi. 13 players were injured, 16 sadly lost their lives. One of the assistant coaches is a farmer. He wasn't on the bus just because of where he lives. He was halfway in between Humboldt and where they were traveling. When he got home, he started receiving calls from the coaches from the other team. They had heard about an accident. So Chris started calling his players, calling the other coaches, started texting them, started Snapchatting them. Getting nothing in reply, he jumped in his truck and went to the scene. The way he describes it is absolutely heartbreaking. When he got there, they set him in a fire truck because obviously he was in shock. Then they said, Chris, you have to go and be the one to identify all the bodies. Obviously something he did not want to do. But they told him, you're the only one left. There's nobody left that knows all the players. We also talked about how he forgave the truck driver. This was, this was hard for me to get because I don't know if I could. He put it like this. He said if that truck would have been a second sooner, probably would have just clipped the front of the bus. It would have just been a fender bender. Can you forgive that? Can you forgive someone that rear ends you? Probably. 
he didn't intend this. And if he didn't intend it, then how can I hate that man? How could his life is going to be awful? Me telling him, I hate you, that isn't going to be of any benefit. Because I want him to heal too. Just like every single one of us. There's already enough pain in this world. Do we need to stack on more? Chris has become somewhat of a sounding board for people that are going through tough times or people that are having troubles. They know he made it, so they want to talk to him. And we preach that in agriculture, right? If, if the farmer down the road is having a tough time, you should reach out and say, hey, do you want to talk? Do you want to go grab a cup of coffee? Something like that. If they take you up on it, that's almost intimidating because you think that you have to say the perfect thing. You think whatever words come out of my mouth uh, could be turned into the next meme that goes viral. Or whatever I say next should be worthy of putting on a bronze statue in Washington, D.C. Chris says that's not the case. They're not asking you to fix their problems. They're just asking you to listen. He said, when you meet grief with pity, it's like, hey, I'm gonna help you up. When you meet grief with sorrow, that's when you're willing to just sit in the dark and listen. And that's what people need. Those are words from a farmer from Saskatchewan, a farmer that I was lucky enough to interview. Wow, just incredible perspective. And you can catch more of Shark Farmer's stories and download his podcast at sharkfarmer.com. Thanks again, Rob. Well, up next, our resident Illinois farmer, John Phipps, joins us with customer support. The many definitions of socialism. It starts with a plan. That's why America's Conservation Ag Movement is inviting you to get your farm business ready for 2021 with a free resource stewardship planning guide. Get your free guide today at agweb.com slash ACAM. Well, John Phipps rejoins us from his farm this weekend for customer support. Regular viewer Philip Haymaker illustrates the problem with the term socialism. I'm not sure a chart can convey the vast qualitative differences between communist Cuba, communist China, and capitalist United States. Saying that China is 60% capitalist is like saying that the riots of last summer were mostly peaceful. The capitalists of communist China are mostly loyal party members or under the control of the party. I have a friend in my Sunday school class who was born in Cuba in the 1950s and came to the U.S. with his family at age 12. He will gladly tell you how well communism worked in Cuba. He still remembers the hunger pangs. Philip, your point is well taken, but the definition of socialism seems to be dependent on memories. For those of us who can recall Khrushchev, Mao and Castro, our definition tends to be fixed in that time frame, placing China somewhere close to pure socialism on the left. It was also a total failure as an economic policy. China almost did not have an economy in 1960. But when Mao died a few years later, leadership passed Deng Xiaoping and his embrace of capitalism un unleashed a unprecedented change in the Chinese economy. For example, today China is second in the world in the number of billionaires. That just simply doesn't happen in a strictly socialist country. And the party, which numbers about 7% of the population, is not really sure how they feel about it. In Deng's words, China is one country, two systems. I use the classic economic meaning. 
a state control of the means of production and the distribution of wealth. Seniors like me may automatically equate socialism with communism because the two were used interchangeably in the mid-20th century. Socialism is often substituted for authoritarianism, dictatorship, in the same way, since state control easily slides into strongman politics. Under socialist dictators like Stalin and Mao, tens of millions of their own citizens were killed or starved. These ghastly facts caused many to simply consider socialism shorthand for evil. Finally, to somehow square our socialist policies like Medicare and farm programs to these other definitions, another definition of socialism seems to have been put into use. It's when the government gives money to people other than me. If I'm receiving it, it's a safety net. I am not being sarcastic. This is actually useful to understanding others. The bottom line is the term socialism is at best ambiguous and too often simply misleading. All right, when we come back, we just all had one of those days. Now we want to hear about it. We'll tell you how you can share that with us next. U.S. Farm Report is brought to you by Kubota. Together we do more. Well, we've all been there. You know, you just have one of those horrible, no good days. And if you've had what a day, we want to hear about it as you continue to farm on. You can actually share some pictures like this, those mishaps that you have on the farm. You can text what to 31313. Share those with us and we'll be compiling these what a day stories. And don't forget, safety is always first. Well, that does it for U.S. Farm Report this weekend. Thank you so much for watching. Be sure to join us again next week as we work to build on our tradition. Have a great weekend, everyone. U.S. Farm Report is produced and distributed by Farm Journal Broadcast.